I enjoy worshiping with you, seeing some of you that know that song, mouthing the words to that. Um, it's just fun. Um, I enjoy worshiping with you. I'm excited about being here today. One of the reasons why I'm excited about being here today is Dr. Tim Kimmel is a national speaker and author. Um, him and his wife, Darcy, they have four married children, and then I'm told a growing number of grandchildren. Um, so that, having the sixth one on Tuesday. So it is a growing number. All right, congratulations. Uh, we're excited to have him with us. Um, he is someone who believes that, that, that saving faith um, and that transform lives. The best way to, to teach that to children is through a loving home. I'm excited about him being with us here this morning. Why don't you join me in welcoming him as he comes to share with us. Well, good morning, everyone. Glad to be here. Reggie, thanks for letting me be up here, Pastor, uh, and uh, share your pulpit and to be with these wonderful people. I, uh, we live in Scottsdale, Arizona, but uh, I feel right at home here. I was brought up in a Baptist church, and, and uh, I was saved in a Baptist church. So I, I, I want to spend some time talking about family. We all come from one. Uh, we might be in the middle of one right now, or we might be in the process in the future of making one. Uh, someone has said that home is where life makes up its mind. And because it does, and it is, uh, I appreciate the fact this church wants to spend some time focusing on how we can best bring the best out of each other in our home. And, and, and my, my wife Darcy and I have been married for, uh, let me do the math now, it's been uh, 43 years. And uh, we, we have raised four kids, and we do have five, almost six grandkids. And, and boy, becoming grandparents, I look around, I see a lot of grandparents here today, a lot of you part of the holy of holies of parenting yes uh darcy says it's god's reward for not selling the kids on craigslist uh, although the thought crossed our mind many times uh but but you know being a family today is a challenge and and, and if i could illustrate what i think uh family is like it reminds me maybe you saw this uh it, you uh on a variety show on television, or maybe you were at a, a, a circus and the clown. Did you ever see somebody that takes plates and put them on a stick and spins them and tries to get a lot of plates going? I've always wanted to do this with someone else's dishes. You know, I don't know how many plates you're spinning, but uh, when you start out life and you're a young person, maybe you finished your college degree and you're starting out in your career and you're falling in love and you're getting married well you, you got several plates you're spinning I've just got four here but you know you get one going that's called your marriage and then you have one that's your job and you got church and you got friends and you get them going and you know how the thing we go they spin one plate and they get it going and they keep adding another one on a stick and of course they start to wobble and they're going all over the place trying to keep these things straight and it's going to be crazy, but we're clever people. You know, there's an app for this. There's a way to figure out how to do this smoothly. And so, so we, we, get, we get going very well. We think, oh, we've got this down. And then some of these come along. These are children. And you get your saucers mixed in there with your plates. And these things require a lot more velocity to keep them going smoothly, if you know what I mean. And so you're really flying to try and keep them going. Like I said, we had four. Three of them were teenagers at one time. And so we thought we should get like combat pay or, you know, a, a bigger deduction on our income tax. So you get these going and, and you think this is fine. And then like one of these comes along and this is a teenager. This is, this is a teen. It's not a saucer anymore. <laughs> and it's not a plate yet. It just thinks it is. Wants all the privileges of a plate. 
doesn't have any money. And it sure has a mind of its own when you try and put some spin on it, doesn't it? Well, I don't know how, how you're doing in your family, but somewhere along the line, we need help. When, when, when my wife and I realized we were going to have children, we, we're like a lot of parents out there. We, we, we don't want to mess this up. This is a big opportunity, a big responsibility. And, and, but as we started reading the different resources out there, at the time there wasn't as many as there are now, and there was some helpful stuff, but we noticed that there were two basic patterns of parenting we saw among uh, the Christian movement. The one that surprised us the most was what, what I would call fear-based parenting. There was a lot of intimidated parents out there, and they were making their plan for parenting based on their fears. But we thought, well, that's not going to work. That's not going to produce the kind of kid we want to produce because if we're followers of Jesus, we should be the last people afraid of just about anything. It's hard to transfer our confidence in a God who is sitting on a throne and has everything under control, who gave himself the nickname in the book of Revelation, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the God who had the first word, and I'm the one who's going to have the last one. See, if we want him to have a confidence in that kind of God, then we knew a fear-based starting point is not going to work. And then the other kind of p a standard pattern among Christian parenting is what I would call performance-based Christian parenting, where we, we kind of define what is a nice Christian family like, what's a nice Christian kid like, how do, they, how do they dress, how do they talk, who do they hang out with, how do they fix their, all that stuff. And then we just kind of follow them around with a little spiritual report card. We knew that one's a dead-on-arrival plan too. That is bankrupt from the beginning. That is not going to produce a heart for God. And, and so we, we, we were kind of desperate to find out, what, what do we do here? How, how, do, we, how do we do this? And, and, and we went to seminary, and, and, um, and, and, and I went to Dallas Seminary, and I studied all, all these theologies, but I never once was given a theology on parenting. And it surprised me because we thought, it's just not like God to give us this big job and not give us a clear plan to follow. Um, my wife is the brains of the operation, though, and she made a great observation followed by a great question uh, when we were uh, starting out. She said, but Tim, think about it. God's a parent. He's parenting us. In fact, uh, uh, that's the number one metaphor for God in the Bible. We, we have a paternal uh, uh, name for him. Jesus said, when you pray, pray our Father who art in heaven. He's a, he's a parent. We're his kids. I wonder if we could study the Bible and study God as a parent and, and see how he's, he's, he's doing that role as a parent and see if we could kind of put some handles on that and quantify it. And as soon as she said that, we saw that the plan for parenting was not hidden somewhere in the Bible. It was right on the surface. It's been obvious all along. And we tried to distill it down and break it down. And we came up for a word that kind of defined everything that God did with us as parents. And that's the word grace. God is a God of grace. And he oversees us in this power, in this, in this, in this feel, sense of, of his grace. And so we, we were just overwhelmed by that. And we, and we got to where we could actually, we started uh, taking it apart and, and breaking it down and, and, and quantifying it. And, and we got to where we could break it down to a napkin. I have one right here. Uh, uh, in fact, you can pick it on the Resource Center. We have it out there. And we're going to spend some time looking at this tonight uh, when we get together. But we saw that God's grace could actually be broken down and, 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 and into pieces on, on, on a paper napkin. And I'm going to give you one section of this this morning. But grace is what kind of defines it all. You know what I... But this is an observation. Because I've been around the Christian movement a long time. Accepted Christ when I was a teenager. Um, 
And you know what I think, our, uh, when it comes to grace, we Christians, man, we resonate with grace, don't we? We love the thought of grace. But you know what I think one of the problems we have is we tend to, we, we don't realize, we tend to confine God's work of grace to, the, to, his, to his work of salvation. Let me say this, let me make sure I'm saying this right. We tend to confine or limit God's grace to his work of salvation that I once was lost, now I'm found, I was blind, but now I see. We get that part, don't we? But we don't realize that, he, that God said, the grace that I saved you with is the grace I meant to now completely reformat you with, define you by, and I want it to be the thing that kind of pours out as you reach out to other people. I want it to define, uh, it to become the DNA of your relationships. And God's grace was meant to lead the way in relationships. But, but it doesn't always do that way, especially when we put ourselves on a performance basis with God and then put our spouse and our kids on one. And so, so it blocks that option that we have to, to kind of define what it's like in a home when grace is in place or not in place. Let, let's use Right here is our, our sample here at, at Temple. Since you came to this church this morning, would you say that this church has presented itself very well to you? And the, as far as its aesthetics, the, 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 the color palette they chose, the, the greeters at the door, uh, every, the way it's all furnished. It's, this, is a, this is a very handsome, nice church. It? it presents itself well. And, and would you say so far in the, in the service, everything has been done biblically correct? I mean, obviously the choir and the, the songs, we say, everything's been done biblically correct. And, 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 and the prayers have been passionate. And so far, I hope I haven't talked down to anybody and I'm showing respect to you. Have we got it biblically right so far? Would you say that's true? Have we got it biblically right? Yeah, okay. But what if it was 25 degrees in this room the whole time? And you're dressed just like you are right now. See, it wouldn't matter how right we're getting it biblically. It wouldn't matter. You wouldn't be able to appreciate it or enjoy it because you'd be so cold. And see, I think we, in, our, in our Christian life, we think that we must get the truth right. We have to have the truth right. We have to have the rules and regulations in place. We got to do this right. We got to behave right. And by the way, I agree with all that. But, but you see, we can be working like mad to make sure that we're transferring the truth of God and forget that he also meant for us to do it in a context of his grace. See, grace puts everything at room temperature. It makes it comfortable. It makes relationships thrive. And so what I want to do is spend some time actually unpacking one, one uh, level of God's grace and what he does with us, and that's how he, he sets our hearts free. He, 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 he gives us a sense of freedom. And there's some freedoms that we can give in our life. To, 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 set, a, to set this up, let's, I want to show you, read you a quick story from Luke chapter 2. You say, oh, I know that story. That's the Christmas story. It is in there. But we're going to go past the Christmas story to one quick little story about Jesus when he was uh, just uh, 12 years old. And it uh, starts, I want to pick this up in verse 39 of Luke chapter 2. Because I want you to see something. It says when, uh, and, and verse 39 and 40 are basically hinge verses between the Christmas story and this event that happened when Jesus was 12 years old. And, um, and look how Luke pulls us out of the one story, sets up the next. He says, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and he became strong. He was filled with wisdom 
And look at this. And the grace of God was upon him. The grace of God was upon him. Now, what he does next is Luke moves from an overriding statement and gets very specific now. And he gives us an example of the grace of God on this kid. And you'll see that Jesus was being raised in a grace-filled home. Watch this. Every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, he went up to the feast according to custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Okay, let's hit the pause button for a second. If this was the first time you ever read this passage, you might be wondering, what was the Heavenly Father thinking when he assigned the earthly care of his only begotten son to these two people? That they actually take off and leave their kid behind in the big city and be unaware of it. It sounds like child neglect at first glance. But as you read on, you realize nothing unusual is going on. Because it says, verse 44, thinking he was in their company, some Bibles translate that caravan, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for them among their relatives and friends. So they were moving in a large entourage of friends and family. Everybody knew everybody. And you know how it is when you're in a large family gathering. The ad, you're, you're an adult. You're in charge of whatever kid is nearby. Right? And on top of this, this, this wasn't a little kid. He's 12 years old. You let 12-year-olds over the horizon. On top of that, this is the most responsible, reliable 12-year-old any two parents ever raised. So they were not worried that he wasn't there. They thinking they were long. But when, when they... But when dinner time came and he didn't show up, they knew well, we got a problem because he's 12, he's a boy. They show up to pop their tanks. Verse 45. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem. Oh, excuse me. It says uh, they were unaware of it. Th thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they, traveled, then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. Listen to this. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers and listening to them and asking them questions. And everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. But when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother spoke for the two of them. Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. I mean, you can sense the exasperation on them. Think about it. It's been three days. They have been turning Jerusalem upside down trying to find this kid. They went to all the places they thought he might be and all the places they hoped he wasn't. They, I, the juvenile lockup or, you know, the ER, wherever. They can't find They're in the hotel at night trying to get some sleep to pick up the hunt. And poor Mary's lying in bed thinking, I've misplaced God. Boy, am I going to be in trouble for this one. And then when they find him, they realize not only is he okay, but he's been okay the entire three days they haven't been, which causes a couple of emotions to fight for first position. Obviously, they're relieved that he's okay, but what else are they? What would you be? Angry. <laughs> they're, up, they're upset with him, just like you would be and I would be. And so she says, why would you have done, done this to us? We, we've, been, we've been searching all over. And then it goes, turns red. If you have a red letter Bible, it turns red. She says, why have you been searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? How are they supposed to know that? Well, there's one little tip-off. And, and that, that uh, you have to do a little detective work. But maybe he was referring back to the fact that Gabriel appeared to Mary. Remember? Before she even conceived, he said, look, you're going to have a son uh, by uh, unusual circumstances here. Uh, and, and, uh, and he's got an agenda. 
and work with him. And he's basically saying, Mom, Dad, come on, we sent you angels. How many parents get that? But they, look at verse 50. But they did not understand what was say, he was saying to them. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. Now look what happened. Verse 51. Then he went down to Nazareth with them, and he was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. Right there, verse 51 describes a grace-based family in action. And you say, how so? Because what happened is antithetical to the circumstances they were in. They were responding differently than what we normally would if we were just in our normal human mode. Because see, it says he, it says he went down with them and was obedient to them. He submitted to them. But, but you, you got to understand, he was God. He could have said, excuse me, but I think you've forgotten who you're dealing with here. How about I refresh your memory? Remember, it was me that came up with that original line, let there be light. I made you. I made the gravity that's holding you down. I could write out your DNA. You don't even know what I'm talking about. But I'm telling you, you, you can't tell me what I can or can't do. I'm God. He could have said that, but he didn't. It says he submitted to the, their earthly guardianship over him and was obedient to them. And it says his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Wait a minute. Just two verses before, she's yelling at him. And says so she, tre- you know, I, I don't think you treasure something, but she knew something very unusual was going on here. And she responded differently. Grace responds differently than we normally would in our human pattern. And that's why I think these, these four wonderful uh, freedoms I want to show you become so real to us because God offers us in his grace four freedoms for our heart that really set us free and bring the best out of them. And when we turn around and give these to the people we love, it's amazing what happens. Let's look at the first one. Grace-based families give the people they love the freedom to be different. The freedom to be different. If you can put that one up there on the screen, please. There you go. Um, Grace-based families give the people they love the freedom to be different. Well, let me give you some synonyms for different so you understand what I mean. Weird. Bizarre. Strange. Goofy. Quirky. Grace-based homes have room for those kind of kids. Fear-based homes do not. Spiritual performance-based homes do not. Sin management homes do not. Evangelical behavioral modification homes do not have room for weird, bizarre, strange, goofy, quirky kids. Those kind of kids embarrass us, and they annoy us, and we want them to stop it. Your kids do wild things. I mean, little kids. You you have a little girl? You see some of you have little girls? Interesting about a little girl. Even if they're an only child, they're never alone. They're always talking with friends. They're always talking with friends. They, and, and, and they have names for them. They, they, they're not sounds, names. You give a, a little girl a pile of rocks, she will make a family out of them. She'll take the biggest. This is Earl. He's the daddy. And here's mom. You have a little boy? He'll throw him in the backyard to play. He'll do a headbutt right into a tree. Say, what is wrong with you? He's a boy. They're weird. They do headbutts into trees. They come in and see their sister. Oh, you, you give the little girl Barbie dolls? She'll play the view. She'll line them up there in a little semicircle, and they'll have a debate over something, and they're doing a TV show. Her her little brother will come in. He'll see that thing. He'll pick up that Barbie doll, bite the head off, and throw it like a grenade and make explosives. They're strange. They're little kids. Then they become teenagers. 
And then they do weird things. You know, one of the standard things that kids, uh, teenagers would do, they go through cycles, right? And, and, and they mess with their hair. And let's say a kid goes over and he, and he uh, wants to get a new hairdo. And he says to his friend, I want a new hairdo. And his friend said, I'll help. Lie down in the grass. Cover your eyes. Then he gets out the weed eater. You know, and then he gets, goes into his mother's uh, uh, medicine cabinet, gets some of the hair coloring out, and they mix it up, and they put it on there. And it's a little bit of green, a little blue, a little pink, a little yellow. They spike it out, and then he comes home to show his mother his new do. And then it's not uncommon for Christian moms to say something like, I don't think Jesus would be very pleased with your hair. Isn't it interesting when we get desperate, we, we drop the biggest name we got in our arsenal. I don't think God would be very pleased with your hair. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I, 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 over the years, you know, the hair is pretty conservative right now, but this always goes kind of wild. And, and, and I've had a referee fights between parents and kids over this. And, I, and so I thought, you know, I want to make sure I'm right on this thing. What does the Bible have to say about hair? What does it have to say? And one thing I do for my Bible reading is I read through the Bible every year. And the good thing about that is if I'm wanting to find out what the Bible says about something, I can just put a little bookmark in on January 1st. In that one year, I said, check out what the Bible has to say about hair. Keep an eye out for this. I've read the entire Bible on this. And here's what God has to say about hair. Basically, he says, I don't care. It's your hair. Express yourself. You can use it like a lab experiment for all I care. It's your hair. And some of you might want to grab the chance why you can. <laughs> because it's going to bail on you. <laughs> now, now, please make sure you understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you as a parent can't have arbitrary standards about your kid's hair. Arbitrary rules. You're the parent. You can make that decision. Just don't make it a moral one because it's not. And don't make it a biblical one when it's not. And see, we block God's grace when we make something a moral or biblical issue when it's not. And so we say, I don't think Jesus would be very pleased with that. When he, he's not weighing in on this one, then, then we actually shove a wedge between that kid's heart and God and that kid's heart and ourselves. I, I, we have a son named Colt. He's our youngest. And when he was going into junior high, he, uh, he asked me, Dad, can I grow my hair real long? I said, man, go for it. You're going to have to grow it a long time before it's as long as mine was when I was in junior high. And he grew his hair real long. He was a tall kid, and, and uh, it looked so great on him. Well, I was speaking at a church in Miami, Florida, and I got a call. I was in a, actually in a taxi on the way to the airport when I got a call uh, from, from my son, Colt. And he called me up and said, Dad, it's spring break. I said, I know. We're going to have a lot of fun. He said, Dad, I was wondering, can I have a mohawk? Can I have a mohawk? It's sweet. I thought about that. I said, you know what? That would be fun. I'll tell you what. I'll be home about 7 o'clock. I'll cut you a great mohawk. And, and you can have it all week. But on Saturday, we'll have to buzz it off because your school doesn't allow mohawks. And, and, and it's great. So I, I hung up. He hung up. Now, you need to know something. I was calculating in something. I was calculating in church. Because, see, we go to a large metropolitan church in Scottsdale, Arizona. And at that time, we had identical services in the evening as we did in the morning. But all the youth and children's ministries were in the evening. So we were trying to draw the parents to the evening because we have so many uh, summer, uh, wintertime guests that come into the Phoenix area. And so, so, so I knew that church would be over. 
And there would be a couple thousand people at church in the evening. He'd be over. I'll cut his hair when, he, when I got home. He hung up the phone, and his sister, our daughter Shiloh, was listening. And Shiloh said, what did Dad say? He said, I can have a mohawk. He's going to cut it for me when he gets home. She said, I know how to cut one of those. <laughs> they got out the clippers and the scissors. She cut him a mohawk. They took Elmer's glue, and they glued that thing up. And he went to church at 4.30. Now, I know he probably sucked the oxygen out of some people's lungs. And some of the older people were going through their purses trying to find every medication they could take and wondering what's going on. And, and I'm sure some people recognize, isn't that the son of the guy that writes the books about parenting? But here's what happened. Though. In between the two services, our people were all congregating. And our, at the, our pastor at the time was a man named Daryl, wonderful guy. He was out talking with some people, and he saw Colt across the thing. And he says, Colt Kimball, is that you? Get over here. I got to see this. He went, that's the greatest mohawk I've ever seen. Man, that, how do you get that to stay up? Yeah, glue. And he said, I wish I had a, a camera. I'd take a picture of me and Colt Kimmel with his mohawk. I'd put it in my study. That is the greatest mohawk. Because, see, you all need to know something. We took our kids to a grace-based church. We took our kids to a church where the people running it know what matters and what doesn't matter. The Bible says that man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. Colt had a wonderful heart. He loved Jesus. He loved his parents. He loved his siblings. He worked hard in school. He was a good friend to people. He served others. He was a great kid. He just wanted to have a mohawk. For a little while. You see, it's so, we get so, we, we, we mess up so many opportunities there by making moral issues out of non-moral issues. Now, you say, wait a minute, Tim, you, you're saying to me sometimes when kids are, you, you, you could see how they're expressing themselves on the outside. Wouldn't you say that that might be showing a, a free fall on the inside? Yes, sometimes you look at a kid, you can clearly tell something's wrong on the inside. My question was, does it make any sense to attack the outside? When the outside is just a symptom of a problem on the inside. Deal with the heart. Fix the heart, and the outside will take care of itself. If there's nothing wrong with the heart, don't worry about it. <laughs> it's just kids being kids. They're, they're different. Grace-based homes give the people they love the freedom to be different. Let me show you a passage of Scripture. Put up that one in Romans 15. Verse 5 is that, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may be with one voice. Glorify the God and Father of your Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, look at this, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. In his grace, he loves our hearts. He goes after our hearts. He cares about us. And he also knows that he makes us all with all kinds of different things to us. Uh, Grace-based families give the people they love the freedom to be different. Let me give you a second one. Grace-based homes give the people they love the freedom to be vulnerable. To be vulnerable. Meaning they, they, they don't have to wear uh, uh, masks around uh, uh, them, uh, on themselves or, or cover their heart from the people up close to them. That their, their vulnerabilities and their, 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 their weaknesses can come to the surface without fear of being attacked. I was going into the ninth grade. A big high school in Annapolis, Maryland. And I was excited because I was going to play uh, football for their famous coach there. I was, um, uh, the girls were prettier. The rock and roll was louder. There was more of both. I thought, this is going to be great. 
But in between my eighth and ninth year, that summer, several hundred of us incoming freshmen got letters from the Board of Education saying that because of overcrowded conditions, we were being annexed to an elementary school in downtown Annapolis. And so instead of going to the big high school, we're back in elementary school. And, and there were many trade-offs. Probably the biggest one was in the area of phys ed. Because normally you would put on a phys ed outfit and you'd go out and play, whatever. And it's a humid area. You might sweat, no problem. You take a shower, put your school clothes back on afterwards. We didn't have that option. We had to do everything in our school clothes. There was a gymnasium on the second floor of a, of a building a couple blocks from the uh, elementary school. And I went in there one winter morning for phys ed. And I got very excited when I came in because there was a trampoline open right in the middle of the gym. And I got very excited because I'd never jumped on one before. They weren't pieces of equipment in backyards back then. Our PE coach came out and we all gathered around. He looked around at all of us, came back to me and said, Kimmel, take off your socks, leave on your shoes. Um, excuse me, take off your shoes, leave on your socks. Take off your shoes, leave on your socks, and climb up here and follow my instructions. So I pulled my shoes off, but as I got up, as I did, I realized I had holes in both of my socks. Not one, both. And one of my friends thought everybody should notice this. Oh, look at Tim's toe stick. Isn't this sad? We need to take up a collection, buy him some real socks. Well, stop by my house. I'll give you some good socks. It was like he was putting down my family's economics, which, by the way, we were lower middle class. We paid our bills in time. We didn't miss a meal. But we went on the mantra, get as much mileage out of your clothing as you can. And up to that moment, I thought that was a good idea. Until that time, when I was up there and I was jumping, I was doing exactly what the coach was telling me to do. All I could think about was my toes sticking out. When I stood down, the other guys were jumping. I'm saying, I'm going to go home. I'm going to get out my sock drawer. I'm going to darn every pair. I will never let this happen to me again in public. It was a very embarrassing moment for me. Well, when the everybody finished, the bell rang. The coach dismissed us. He took off. I went and got on my shoes and put on my coat and got my books. And I went out the side door and went, and went down the side door, uh, the, the steps. And I got to the bottom. I hear my name. Kimmel, wait up. It was the coach. And he came down. He pulled me aside. He said, hey, Tim, I want to tell you why I called on you to do the demonstration. Tim, you're the most agile student in my class. And then he reached down and he pulled off his tennis shoe. He had a big old hole in his sock. And he stood there and he was just kind of moving his toes. He says, you know, us agile guys are tough on socks, man. <laughs> now go to class. So I'm heading over to class. And the whole way I'm thinking, what's agile? Because I had no idea what that word. I'd never heard that word before in my life. Show you what a sorry student I was. But I was going to an English class and they had these big dictionaries on stands. And they loved it when you actually looked up a word without a gun held to your head, and I looked up agile. And I read for the first time in my life that I could move with speed, ease, elegance, and liveliness. And I read for the first time in my life that I was mentally alert and quick-witted. No one had ever told me that before. I wrote it down. I memorized it. And I did a 180-degree turn in two major areas of my life, academics and athletics. In fact, a couple weeks later, I had a challenge. Who can do the most sit-ups in the ninth grade? And these weren't these crunches that you do today. These are these, these uh, since band uh, lower back pain uh, things where you had to lay flat in your back and, and your knees weren't even bent and you had to come up and cross over. They don't allow them in school anymore. But they did it. And, and, 
And I set the record that year. And I kept going. In fact, me and this other guy got in a challenge. We kept going through phys ed class, through English class, and through lunch period. They were sending out runners. They're up to 491 and all that stuff. My stomach muscles hurt for days after that. But I didn't care because I was agile. <laughs> you know, it took me a while to put the pieces together to figure out why the coach disappeared so quickly after class. He had to get into he he, he had to get get into his little side office, pull his shoe off, cut the hole in his sock, put his shoe back on, and chase me down. He didn't go around with holes in his socks. He's a PE coach. They give him new shoes and socks as part of the deal. But he saw a vulnerable kid that needed help, and he touched his life with grace. Now listen, our children and grandchildren have these kind of moments all the time. Someone has described childhood as a 24-hour a day, seven-day-a-week, 365-day-a-year battle to keep from being embarrassed. We need to touch them with grace. We need to help them through that. We know that Paul had a, a, a thing he was very self-conscious about. He went to God and asked him several times, will you take this away? In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And then, I love this, in Colossians 4, 6, it says, let your conversation be always full of grace, season with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Grace-based homes give the people they love the freedom to be different, the freedom to be vulnerable. And thirdly, the freedom to be candid, candid, meaning that, that they, you can, your kids can tell you what's on their mind, even if it's stuff we're not excited about hearing. Maybe they come to a stage in their teenage years where they're questioning whether Jesus is God or the Bible is the truth or, 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 or the cross is the only way to God. This isn't time to panic and, and hire some theologian from the seminary and duct tape them to your kid's face or something. <coughs> Smarter kids than yours and mine have gone through times of doubt. What they need is see us remaining calm while their faith is on trial. Or maybe it's something that we have done that's frustrated them or bothered them. Is it a two-way street? I mean, when our kids do things that, that bother us, we usually have an outlet to tell them, is it a two-way street? Because unless you're a perfect parent, you get it wrong sometimes. Our son, Colt, Cody, he was the second born. It was, um, he finished his homework in the spring, it was springtime. He finished his homework. He was getting ready for bed. He said, oh, Dad, I forgot to mention, I need you to sign me out of school tomorrow at, at noon. Why? What's up? He said, well, uh, it's opening day of the Diamondbacks, and St my friend Steve invited me to uh, the game. He's got tickets right behind the, the dugout, and, and, and he wants uh, to me along. Now, now the, the Arizona Diamondbacks had beaten the New York Yankees the year before in the, in the World Series, so this is a big opening game. But for some stupid reason, I thought I needed to teach him about personal responsibility. I said, Cody, you're a student. You go to school at 8, you get out at 3. You don't necessarily get to take off because something fun's happening. He said, Dad, but they're going to have F-16s fly over. That's great. But, and then, uh, but, but I went back to my thing. It's like you have a job, and we all have jobs, and, and there's always fun distractions, but we got to stay. And he went, he said, Dad, I think Randy Johnson's going to be in the mount. And I went back to my little lecture, and I'm going on, and he says, Dad, I think Alice Cooper's going to sing the national anthem. And, and you can just see, I was just exasperating this poor kid. And finally, he got very quiet, but respectfully, he said, listen, Dad, I bring you home straight A's. All I've ever brought you home are straight A's. I can't bring you home any better grades than I'm bringing you. Now, you need to decide whether I can go to that game or not. 
It was like a big hand came right down out of the clouds, a divine hand, and did one of these right down the top of my head. Said, Will you sign this boy out? What is your problem? And here's what's really ironic. Those grades he was making did not come from his father's side of the gene pool. Those were from his mother's side. I struggled in school. I felt you should have vowels and consonants on your report card. I, you know, I felt so foolish. I reached in my pocket. I took out two large bills, and I handed them to Cody and said, Cody, make sure you buy the big hot dogs and drinks for you and Stephen. And Cody, please forgive me for being so foolish. Listen, we get it wrong sometimes. And we got to give the people we love the freedom to be candid with us. Now, they need to do it respectfully. And, 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 and one of the best ways to make sure your kids speak respectfully to you when they're frustrated with you is speak respectfully to them when you're frustrated with them. The scripture we know that God, who never makes a mistake, still does things that sometimes frustrates us. He knows that. In Hebrews chapter 4, he says, you don't have a high priest that doesn't understand what it's like to be in your skin. He's in all ways tempted just like you are, yet without sin. He says, but come boldly to my throne of grace, and you'll find mercy. Uh, and another scripture that I really like on this one, he, in Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that no one misses the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Grace-based home. Give the people they love the freedom to be different, vulnerable, candid. The fourth one is they give the people they love the freedom to make, to make mistakes. To make mistakes. Now, I'm not saying we're encouraging mistakes, nor am I saying that mistakes don't mean consequences because discipline is a form of grace. The Bible says, them whom God loves, he disciplines. But if home is where life is making up its mind, then home must be a place where where, where, where disappointments are processed and, and mistakes are endured. And, 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 and when people blow it, it doesn't mean the end of a relationship. Now, where did I get these four things from? I got them from how Jesus deals with you and me. He gives us the freedom to be different, vulnerable, candid, and the freedom to make mistakes. And he wants to touch our lives with grace. He has poured his grace over us, and we have a chance to be emissaries of his grace and outlets of his grace. You may be here this morning and, and you may be thinking, you know, I have been a recipient of his saving grace, but I have not been an ambassador of that grace and the people that are close to me, my spouse, my kids. And, and you might need, you, you say, this is a good time to rededicate my heart to that. And when we give the invitation, you just might want to come down there and pray with the pastor and just say, yes, I, I need it. Or you may be here and say, I need God's grace. I, I've not been set free from my sin. I want, I want, I, I, I need to, that, that initial touch of his grace that sets me free. When we give the invitation, I want you to come down here and talk with them and say, uh, I, Jesus, I need, I, I need help. I, I need forgiveness. We want to offer that to you through the cross. Right now, let, let's just pray. Uh, and, and I look forward to seeing you this evening. Lord Jesus, please be with the people here as we now come to this time of decision. It, it, Lord, wherever we are, I pray that your grace will overwhelm us. And if, if, the, if people here are followers of you, that they will want to be people who, who model this grace for the people they love so much up close and personal. And then if there's anyone here who's never put their faith in you, I pray that, that right now they will make this chance to come on up here and talk with the pastor.
and, and find forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.